Thanks, Kendi. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bethany. It's good to be back home after a couple of weeks of uh, speaking, a week in California, a week on the East Coast, and now here. And I'm very excited, actually, about this series. We're starting a series in Jonah uh, today that's going to run for several weeks. And I'll confess to you, I've never studied Jonah in depth before. So this, I was uh, blown away this week by what I discovered in looking at Jonah. So please join me. We'll pray together, and then we'll look at what God has for us in the text this morning. Father, we'd like to thank you so much uh, that we're granted the privilege of gathering here and listening for your voice. And we'd like to commit these moments to you and invite your Holy Spirit to teach us and speak to us. We're mindful that we live in an incredibly fractured world, that the adjectives descriptive of our day seem to be fear, anxiety, disengagement, cynicism. I'd like to pray, Father, that uh, you would shape us to swim upstream against those prevailing attitudes, that we could be people of hope shaped by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a favorite book of mine is a book entitled Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. Some of you know the author. Some of you read the book. I'm just going to read a little bit here to shape what we're uh, talking about this morning. This book is about finding your calling, basically. And this is what he says. The soul has many secrets that are only revealed to those who want them, and they're never completely forced upon us. But one of the best-kept secrets, and yet it's hidden in plain sight, is that the way up is always down. I'm just going to stop there and let that sink in for a minute. The way up is always down. What he means by that, he says, the pattern's obvious in all of nature, from the change of seasons and substances on the earth to the 600 million tons of hydrogen that the sun burns every day to light and warm our earth, even to the metabolic laws of dieting or fasting. The down-up pattern is constant. Also in mythological stories, uh, the, the way up is down. And then uh, he goes on. It's still a secret, though, because we don't want it to be that way. We want the way up to be up, not down. Uh, and we don't want to embark on a journey that feels like going down when everything in our culture tells us that we need to be about going up. And so this is, there's this tension of our, our kind of instinctive and cultural invitation to pursue upward mobility, more prestige, more influence, more power, more pleasure, more money, more financial security, whatever it is. And so we're, we're going upward, and then uh, what happened to Jonah was, bam, God sends him in a direction that is completely contrary to everything that he was doing, and he has to kind of set aside his existing identity, particularly his prejudices, and move in a different direction. And this is powerful, I, I think, for, for all of us in the room. Uh, and, and this has happened in history, this way up being down over and over again, but it hasn't been easy. Martin Luther King, when he was called to speak prophetic, uh, prophetically about systemic racism to white people, found the way up to be down. Gandhi, when he spoke to British uh, power structures about uh, colonialism in India, the way up was down. Uh, Reconciliation in Rwanda, where Kendi's about to go, the way up was down for many people who had to move away from their prejudices into a new calling of reconciliation. It's very difficult. So what's going to happen here in the book of Jonah is God is going to speak to Jonah, and this is what he's going to say. A, go where you don't want to go. B, say what you don't want to say. C, say what you don't want to say to people 
that you don't want to speak to, people you don't like. Isn't that awesome? So that's kind of the, the calling here. What it does is, that, like this is John 12, 24. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is a critique of kind of our idea that we're going to boutique, self-manufacture our life. Do you know what I mean? Like we're going to set a goal and just go after it, but then we have to be open to this interjection of God's calling because the most profound things that will ever happen in our life will happen because God speaks to us in a significant, powerful, and disruptive way. So we'll look at, uh, interestingly, there's only two points in your outline this morning. This is novel, but there's four po- subpoints under the second one, so don't panic. There's plenty of material there. Uh, but there's a, there's a, we're going to look at the context of Jonah's call, and we're going to look at the call itself, right? We're going to look at those two things, and be, it's important you understand the context, so we begin there. There's a cultural weight to this call. Jonah's a hard book to find in your Bible, but uh, if you go to the major prophets, that's like Isaiah, we've been looking at Ezekiel, and you keep heading toward the New Testament, uh, of, right after Amos, you'll run into Jonah. So if you want to see the text, that's where it is. Or if you have a phone, just type Jonah into your Bible app. It's much easier that way. So uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise go to Nineveh. We'll just, we'll just stop there for now. So, uh, first of all, let's look at the, we need to understand the genre of this book of the Bible. Because anyone uh, who teaches uh, English literature, my, my daughter teaches English literature, genre is important. Like, you don't read poetry as history. You don't read history as poetry. You don't read uh, a, a legal document as, as an essay. So what is this? And this is a, this is a book that's a little bit hard to define. Uh, in the Bible, about a third of the Bible is narrative, a third is poetry. Don't read them all the same way. So the first question, what kind of literature am I reading here? And that shapes the reading moving forward. So with Jonah, there's a couple of observations. First of all, it's a real story, but it's also a playful story in a way. Jonah's a real person. He has a genealogy here, and he shows up earlier in the book of 2 Kings, and later Jesus mentions him as a historical figure, and he mentions the city of Nineveh. And when Jesus mentions him, he mentions the three days that Jonah spent in the belly of a whale, as many of you know from, the, from your children's experience with the book of Jonah, if you had one. Jonah swallowed by a whale, and Jesus says, that's a picture of three days in the grave. Uh, for now, don't worry about the big fish. We'll just speak about it a very short bit uh, in a couple of weeks, but today we're not even going to mention the fish. There's no time stamp on this book. So it makes it a bit uncertain. And other than Jonah and his dad, no one in the book is named. There's a king of Nineveh. There's some fishermen. But that's it. So we don't know when. We don't know exactly who. But we do know this. And this is crux to the book. Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel... And the Assyrians, from their inception, were proud and violent. If you don't understand that, the book doesn't make much sense. Proud, violent, and as they only became the conquerors of the Northern Kingdom, they were also very anti-Semitic, right? And so the book is history, but there's also kind of an element of satire in the book. The book is filled with surprises, because uh, it's the, 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 like the, the antagonist of the story in a way, like 
the loser in the story, if we could say it that way, is Jonah. Like the guy that you think is supposed to be the good guy is the bad guy. The man of God runs from God. So he's hard-hearted, and he's the most hateful person in the whole story. And God has to physically intervene to get him to go on the mission because he doesn't want to go. And then all he does is preach a five-word sermon, and it's so wildly successful, the whole city repents, and then he's mad about it, and God has to chew him out for being mad about God being merciful. So, like, Jonah is not a great hero in the story, right? And then, who, like, who are the people then in the, in the story who are the, kind of the heroes? Well, these crusty sailors who are godless become believers. The Ninevites become believers. And it says in chapter 3, this part of satire, even the cows repented and believed, right? So the sailors, the Ninevites, the cows, those are the good ones. And the one who is vile is the prophet. So it's all unexpected, and that's in a sense why it's satire. And everything's extreme in the book. The word great or huge is used 15 times in this tiny little book, right? So it is a fish story, in a way. There's, there's like some exaggeration going on. The storm is huge. The city is huge. The fish is huge. <clears throat> the city's so huge, it takes three days to walk through it. And it's actually 15 miles from one end to the other. So it's not, it doesn't take three days, but they say it does. So, and then, uh, Jonah's never in the book afraid. He's always greatly afraid. He's never depressed. He's always greatly depressed. Uh, so he's behaving in exaggerated ways, in an exaggerated story, and he looks like the, the, like the worst of a child, right? Kind of, you know, sitting, whining, resisting uh, the parent, like it's just, that's the way the story is. So uh, kind of make an observation here. One of the reasons uh, that uh, uh, prophets exist is to deliver a, like a corrective message to a group of people, and the, the people here are Ninevites, and the, and the corrective message is about repentance. And so what happens is um, prophets often use rhetorical tricks uh, in order to provide a corrective message. Jonah doesn't use a rhetorical trick, but the story of Jonah is a rhetorical trick. Does that, does that make sense? Like Jonah's message is simple and direct. Time's up, gotta repent. That's all he says. And they're like, yes, we've been wicked. And there's a revival, right? So uh, God's uh, not trying to get to the Ninevites through this story. He's trying to get to God's people, you and I. And the way he's trying to get to God's people is through using these kind of rhetorical tricks by, by making Jonah, who we all think will be the good guy in the story, the bad guy, so that we, the people of God, can take a look in the mirror and say, in what ways am I like Jonah? Does, does that make sense? So rhetorical tricks are intended to kind of wake us up. One of my favorite uh, prophets is uh, prophet Amos. And if you haven't studied Amos, what's so fun about Amos is there is this rhetorical trick where Amos does what I would call a revival meeting, essentially. Like, imagine five nights, and there's a meeting, and uh, we come in here. What Amos does is every night, uh, in the name of God, he blasts a certain people group, right? So, uh, the Babylonians are bad. 
The, the, the Syrians are bad, right? The Ammonites are bad. The Hittites are bad. The Jebusites are bad. And, because he's speaking to Jews, they're, I mean, they're loving it. Like, he's feeding their own kind of nationalism and pride and tribalism. So every night, they're going out there telling their neighbors, hey, you gotta come, you gotta come hear this guy, it's amazing. So the crowd's growing and growing and growing. He says, now tomorrow night, I'll tell you about the worst group of all. And so then when everybody's gathered, the end of the book, the, at the end of the book, he's like this. And you wanna hear the worst group? The Jews, right? And he's speaking to them, right? So now, like he has them. Does that make sense? Like that's this rhetorical trick stuff. And, and it's, it's it, one of the great rhetorical tricks, if you want to communicate something, is story. Like, you want to make a point, tell a story. So this is a story. When Abraham Lincoln wanted to make a point, he told a story. When Jesus wanted to make a point, he told a story. When Aesop wanted to teach children moral construct, he told fables, right? So stories are powerful, and just before we go on into the particulars here, I will say uh, your story is also powerful. Does that make sense? Like the, the redemptive arc of your life is the best apologetic for the gospel. What God is doing in your actual life is the most important story you could ever share. And people are, everyone's interested in your story. So we, I hope that we spend time as a community in the days ahead teaching one another to know our own story, share our own story, it's, it's very important. I made just a, I was speaking last week in Maryland and just made a, almost a, a throwaway comment that I was adopted. And that led at, at a meeting where I was signing books to about 10 conversations with people on the subject of adoption and God's presence in their lives. Every little piece of our story is, is redemptive. So that's just a parenthetical thing here for us as a community because we're going to come back to this later in the fall and the winter. Stories are powerful. Know your story. But now, let's get back to the text. Why does Nineveh need intervention? Here's why. Nineveh is sowing pride and arrogance and violence and hatred. And as it sows those things, there's a principle all through history we will reap what we sow. And so as, as Nineveh is sowing pride, arrogance, violence, and hatred, it soon it's about to collapse under the weight of its own immorality. It's a, it's a large city, about 150,000 people. It's spread out, and, and the Ninevites are they're just wicked people. By 3000 BC, the area of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh had become an important religious center for Mesopotamian goddesses, particularly the goddess Ishtar, and then there was this guy named Sennacherib, uh, and he made Nineveh a magnificent city around 700 B.C. Like it rose to its position of prominence when the Assyrian Empire was at the height of her glory. There were stone carvings in the walls of Sennacherib's uh, temple that included all kinds of battle scenes showing the, the, like the wickedness and violence of the Assyrians. So if you can imagine a building and what's carved in the wall, what's painted in the wall on murals are battle scenes of people being impaled and scenes showing Sennacherib's men parading the spoils of war. The Assyrians are doing terrible, terrible things to those that they conquer and this is critical to understanding the book. So there are inscriptions in the writings of Sennacherib uh, when 
uh, he, he quotes regarding those that they conquer. And this is what he says. We conquered this one particular city, and he writes, quote, Its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare. And with their corpses, I filled the streets of the city. And he later wrote about a battle with the Jews and Hezekiah of Judah, who had not submitted to my yoke. Him I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a caged bird. Earthworks I threw up against him. Anyone coming in and out of his city, I made pay for his crime. The cities which I plundered, I'd cut off from his land. So, A, they're worshiping false gods. B, they're intent on destroying the people of God. C, they're arrogant. D, they're violent. The Assyrians had a reputation for skinning their captives alive. So they would skin their captives alive, and then others, uh, they, would, they would cut off one arm and two legs, and then shake their hand while they were bleeding to death incredibly hard-hearted, incredibly violent, to the point of nausea, right? So these are not people that we would think by any standard are quote-unquote ripe for the gospel. Does that make sense? Like, uh, you're not going to start a seeker-friendly church with these people. They are are hard-hearted. They're resistant. They won't come to Alpha. They won't come to the community meal. They're not a group of homeless people necessarily. These are people aggressively opposed to the people of God. And, and that's, what fra- that's what blew my mind as I studied this because it's what frames the story. So if you try and think about what Jonah is being asked to do, it's commensurate to a Jew being asked to go into Berlin and speak to the Nazis about their anti-Semitic behavior in 1938. Or, or sending a black man to a KKK rally and telling me, I want you to preach repentance to these people in Georgia in 1910. Or a prisoner of war in Vietnam preaching to the Vietnamese who've been torturing them. Or a Tutsi preaching to the Hutus after the genocide. Pastor Gahiji, a friend of mine in Rwanda, 153 of his own family members were killed by Hutus. And then his ministry now is among the Hutus. That's this story. So look, if you're Jewish and it's around 700 BC, the Assyrians are Hutu. They're the tormentors, the persecutors, and you're Tutsi. They're Viet Cong and you're an American prisoner. They're KKK and you're black. They're the Nazis and you're a Jew. That's this story. So the Assyrians are not kind of passively evil. and It's not just that they vote differently or something like that. These are folks actively inflicting violence and pain and your people group are suffering as a result. So the overwhelming temptation with a group that is actively persecuting me is to respond to evil with evil, to respond to violence with violence, to respond to hate with hate, and if not violence and hate, at least keeping my distance. I I don't want anything to do with these people. I'll escape. I'll immigrate. But the last thing I will do is come as a man of peace and share truth in love with them in hopes that these hated people will be transformed. I don't want them forgiven. I want them suffering. I want them to pay. That's this story. So what's at stake when we try and get into the mind of Jonah? Everything's at stake. Like our entire understanding of the gospel is at stake right here. Here's why. Jonah's response to this calling, it, it reveals something in us that's good but inadequate. What in us is good but inadequate? Justice without mercy. 
truth without grace. Is it good to want justice in the world? Absolutely. Is it good to want truth in the world? Absolutely. But what you see in Jonah is the kind of world in which we would live if we wanted only justice and not mercy, only truth and not grace. Because justice without mercy is retributive. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, like you did that bad thing, you must pay. End of story. I just want to see you suffer. In fact, tenfold for what you did. So this is, here's the thing, justice without mercy, truth without grace is not the gospel. What's the gospel? What, what, uh, in the Old Testament, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? Not 10,000 sacrifices. What does the Lord require? Do justice and what? Do you know the rest? Anybody? Love, mercy, justice and mercy together. It's the only way it works. And when Jesus came, John 1.14, hey, uh, the Word became flesh, like the eternal God became a human, and we beheld the glory of God in that human. And what does the glory look like? Full of what? Truth and grace. And religious people, in particular, are at risk of peddling truth without grace. Seeking justice without mercy. It's a problem. In, in uh, the book and, and movie, As We Forgive, we read the story of the Rwandan genocide. And the story of the Rwandan genocide is the story of the systemic, demonic stronghold of racism. I mean, you see it so clearly there. One people group exalting themselves above another, and, and so deeply ingrained in that particular culture at that particular time for a number of circumstances beyond the purview of this sermon this morning, but in that particular moment, it wasn't just racism, it was racism that inflamed into, into genocide, right? And so when you think of this, uh, imagine the, the, this, this hatred is so deeply ingrained in the culture, you can't imagine how it could ever be fixed, Think Tutsi and Hutu, think German and Jew, think African-American and KKK member. Those on the receiving end of injustice and hate are facing rage and anger and what they want is justice and it's understandable that they want justice. It's in the human heart to want justice. It's a good thing. When we stop caring about just behavior, what a terrible road. However, we need to wrestle with the reality that if the world were only just, then none of us would be here anymore. Does, does that make sense? I mean, that's the, that's the articulation of Romans 3, right? Everyone would fall under a cloud of condemnation. So uh, we're not in Nineveh, right, in our own culture, and yet we have to wrestle with the same thing because... because in our own culture, uh, we're tribal in the moment. And one of the uh, adjectives that characterizes our time is anger. And I've seen it uh, uh, too many times to count in the last two weeks in conversations with people at various conferences at which I've spoken, Christian people who are like this, we, like our family can't even sit at the Thanksgiving table together and have a meal because of political differences. 
because, because of differences on uh, sexual ethics within the church, because of differences uh, on economic issues. Like we can't, even, we can't even talk to each other. People are so mad and afraid and, and, and wanting to quote unquote, you know, get it right that it's created a combative environment. So listen, we're not, that's not Nineveh. And yet though it's far milder than Nineveh, we're behaving like Jonah. Does, does that make sense? Like we're unwilling to cross divides, unwilling to have conversations, unwilling to love. This is a problem. We want, we want justice without mercy. We want truth without grace. We want everyone to believe the way we believe. No. So that's the situation. God is telling someone to go to a group of people who are violent, arrogant, and hate his people group and call them to repent so that, so that they can enter into the, the grace of God. And he, he so hates that group, he doesn't want to go. So that's, that's the context of the book. Now, let's look at the call. The, because the call, there's four things here regarding the call that are important. First, the call represents God's love for all people, right? The call represents God's love for all people. Pure justice would only care about punishing the perpetrator. If it's just justice, God just vaporizes people who do the wrong thing, and it's over. But of course, if that were the way that God did stuff, none of us would be here, as we've already seen. So God's interest is never in punishment rooted in anger, ever. God's interest is discipline rooted in love. And so if you go to um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, you see that God is this loving Father for all of humanity, and the ones that God loves, what does God do? God disciplines the ones he loves. Like there's intervention. Love creates intervention so that people don't continue on a self-destructive path. That's what's happening in Nineveh. And so God is sending Jonah to be the mouthpiece of God, bring a word of love. And the word, watch this. The word of love is a word of a warning and a word of judgment and a word of discipline. But it's warning and judgment and discipline rooted in love. And love desires not to see the other punished, but desires to see the other transformed. So we, you know, many of us in the room probably have watched the documentary Seattle is Dying. And, and one of the things that we see in the documentary, no matter what you think of it, is there's kind of a debate going on between a passive response to homelessness and drug addiction and, and uh, mental illness and a relational intervention. That's, there's, a, there's a debate going on. Like, do we, do we allow, just kind of allow this to continue in some way, or is there an intervention that can break the cycle of addiction, break the cycle of poverty? And, and any, any intervention that will happen will need to be relational to be restorative, and I remember being in a town hall meeting about 10 years ago at Greenwood Elementary regarding the encroaching issue of homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction in our neighborhood. And 10 years ago, in the town meeting at Greenwood Elementary, I wrote it down. Someone stood up and received massive applause for this, 
They stood up and they said to the police who were in attendance and some social workers, they said, look, this problem doesn't belong in our neighborhood. We don't care what you do with these people. We just want them to what? Go away. Now, I'm going to tell you, that is absolutely not the gospel. Do you understand? Because here's the thing. Who does God love? Everyone. Including the addict, including the homeless person, including, including uh, the person struggling in some kind of life issue that has placed them on the streets, that's where we live. And so our calling is to <clears throat> uh, restorative justice, not retributive justice. And restorative justice begins with this. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone. So that means everyone has the possibility of turning. But turning requires receiving love. I won't turn until I receive love. And now, this is the most important thing this morning. Turning requires receiving love, but no one can receive love unless love is first what? Given. Who's called to give love in this instance? Jonah. Who's called to give love here? Now, you, me, us. The loving message that God wants to send through Jonah is, hey, Time's up. Change your ways. It's literally five words. But it's a loving message. So, the call, understand this, represents God's love for all people. Like if you did a sauce reduction on Christianity and you boiled Christianity down to its essence, right? Letting all the theological chaff kind of blow away. What does Jesus say that the entire Bible is reduced to two commands? And what are they? Love God and love your, love your neighbor. Love all your neighbors. Your Muslim neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your rich neighbor, your poor neighbor, your homeless neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love, that's it. So the call represents God's love for all people. Now, the call critiques this notion that is prevalent today, and you've heard this. Hey, you want to know God's will? Just follow your passion. Uh, no, not this time. And many people are hard on Jonah because they're like this. Oh, you know, all the other prophets were so amazing, so obedient, but Jonah's the, kind of the warning. No, that is just simply not true. Uh, can I remind you, when God called Moses, he wanted to stay in the wilderness, not go back to Egypt. When God called Amos, he wanted to remain as a fig farmer, not preach the message that God had given to give. When God called Jeremiah, he didn't want to go. He said, I'm too young. When God called Ezekiel, he didn't want to go. He said, oh, this message, it, it's like lamentations, mourning, and woe. I don't want to go. Uh, when God called Paul to minister to the Jews, excuse me, to the Gentiles, he was like, I want to minister to the Jews. And God said, I don't care what your passion is. I'm calling you to go there, right? When, when Abraham Lincoln took the presidency, he didn't want to lead over a divided nation, he wanted to lead over a united nation. But God called him to that time and that place. I wanted to live in Alaska, God called me to LA. I wanted to live on the mainland, God sent me to an island. I wanted to live in the mountains, God sent me to the city. Whatever. Don't follow, don't think that the kind of this mantra of following your passion will always lead you to God's will. Don't follow your passion, follow God's voice. Use your gifts, and you should enjoy your gifts, but the context that God gives you is, it will be often contrary to your own desires. Often, actually. So you've got to learn to listen for God's voice and, and the, like, pay attention to the signs along the way where God may be calling you 
in a, in, a, in a different direction and don't preemptively dismiss the possibility that God may want you to go to Rwanda on a mission trip or may want you to go uh, to India or may want you to change jobs or change neighborhoods. Don't preemptively dismiss because it's quote-unquote not your passion. It just doesn't work that way. Third thing, uh, the call challenges conventional wisdom regarding who God chooses. I mean, it's tempting to be hard on Jonah as if we'd do better, but don't be hard on Jonah. Because already we understand the challenging context, right? But there's more, as I've already shared with you. Jonah's not the only person in the Bible who resists God's call. Moses, Paul, Amos, Jeremiah. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, who in the garden said, hey, if I could write my, not my paraphrase, but he's like this. If I could write my own ticket... I'd skip the cross. What, what, I mean, what does it say in Hebrews about Jesus? Who for the joy, consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him, what? Does anyone know? Like we're a small group this morning. Bible quiz. Endured the cross. Not who for the joy set before him, kissed the cross, embraced the cross, loved the cross. What did he do? Endured the cross. Not his passion, his, his suffering. So, you know, if you and I thought our call would unfold like this, and instead it's like that, and you're disappointed with that dissonance, part of that dissonance may well be a cross. You thought you'd have this job, you have that job. Don't worry, it's your calling. Is there an element of the cross in it? Yeah. And the fact that you're not giddy over the thought of crucifying some of your desires is not surprising. Like, I'm not giddy over it either. Or laying your reputation on the line is difficult. Yeah, it is difficult. Or loving your enemies. Yeah, that's hard. So, uh, Jesus, for the joy said before him, endured the cross. Sweat drops of blood. Didn't want it to happen. But when the day is done, what he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I'm going to endure. I'm going to go. I'm going to follow, even when it goes against my desires. There will be something in every one of us in our calling that's difficult. You don't have to like it, but you need to go there anyway. And of course, when you do, it's not easy, but it's right. Does that, does that make sense? You have to follow what's right. And if God is loving, as we'll see with this big fish story, when we resist... God will continue to pursue us, and God will continue to pursue us, to, uh, to shape us. Uh, like those who love us bring out the best in us, or committed to bringing out the best in us, even when we don't want to bring out the best in ourselves. I remember um, when I was uh, rock climbing a great deal more than I am now, I was over at Vantage, if some of you know it, in the middle of the state. Um, if you don't know for climbing, you know for concerts, but it's over there. And I was climbing with a friend, and I was at the top of my difficulty level, and this guy, my friend, is belaying me from below, and I uh, climbed and fell, and so I'm kind of hanging in the air, and I, I, say in, I say lower, which in climbing lingo means I'm done, and he's like this, no. I go, hey, didn't you hear me? I said lower. He says, I'm not lowering you. You can do that. I said, I, I don't want to do that. He says, well, you're not the belay guy, so uh, um, <laughs> try it again. 
And I tried again, I fell again. I said, okay, I tried it, are you happy? He said, no, I'm not happy. You can do that. I'm not lowering you. I fell again. I'd fallen three times. I yelled down, I want a new belayer. He said, no, time's up, change your ways, right? Fourth time, and I made it. And that stuck with me. Out of all the climbing gunk in my life, that's a stellar moment. Why? Because someone said to me, you're capable of more than you believe. And I'm not going to let you down that easy. Yeah, you know what? That's what God will do here with Jonah. Because, finally, in closing, the response reveals uh, the depths of resistance for Jonah. Let's take a look at this map. We're quick here. Look at this. So Jonah's in Joppa. God says go to Nineveh. Where does he want to go? Like the opposite direction, 2,500 miles away. And by the way, Tarshish is awesome. Are you kidding me? The coast of Spain versus Syria? I don't know. It's a tough choice. No, it's not a, it's not a tough choice. That's where he wants to be, and that's where I want to be, right? And that's where men in the room want to be, not literally Joppa, but we want to be where it's mellow, where it's friendly, where, where no change is required, where no confrontation is required, where no truth-telling is required, where no loving of enemies is required. We, like, we want to be in a space here that's perfectly comfortable, and God says, actually, in this particular moment in your life, I'm calling in a different direction. And the, the, the direction that you need to go will require of you a cross. And listen, if we resist that, then many of us in the room, we end up super frustrated. And Richard Rohr, in this book, as I close, he says, the two groups who are best at resisting God's calling are the very rich and the very religious. Boom. That's pretty convicting for a, a group of evangelicals in Seattle. <laughs> the very rich and very religious. Why? Because we have the resources to remain exactly as we are. But here's the danger. We're here and bored. Here and disengaged. Here and frustrated. Here and drying up. Why? Because the cross is calling and we're saying no. So there's no big dramatic response this morning other than this. My plea to you as your pastor and to me is will I please pay attention to the voice of God so that when God is calling me toward the cross, the thing I don't want to do, I'm willing to say yes. Because if I move toward the cross, on the far side of the cross is what? Resurrection. And that's what we're made for, resurrection life. It's unavailable without Nineveh. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Jonah. I pray that you'd shepherd us through these weeks in a book that will make us laugh, will make us angry, will make us cry, will convict us. But particularly, I pray that we would kind of change our hearts so that we have this divine bent toward yes when you call us to the cross. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you praying in Christ's name. Amen.